Before we start, this episode contains some chat you might find upsetting, so do check the show notes for more details if you need. Hello and welcome to Happy Place with me, Fern Cotton. This is the show that allows space for personal truths to be voiced and heard. Today, I'm meeting Sir Bradley Wiggins. People say, oh, it's a shame you fought in that love with cycling. It's like, it was, I was never in love with it. It became a religion. You don't fall in love with a religion. You adopted a religion, and I adopted a religion of cycling. And now I've left my faith. You should get back on the bike. You know, it's a shame you lost the love for the bike. Normal people love cycling. They go out, they love getting on the bike. I can't stand it. I hated cycling, really, the, the act of riding a bike. It just gave me, it was a, it was a, it was a means, it was, it was to facilitate what I wanted to do in my life. Cyclist Bradley Wiggins is a Tour de France winner and five times Olympic champion, the only rider to win both the Tour de France and Olympic gold in the same year. Bradley is a hugely celebrated athlete, an icon in British sports. But that legend, Sir Wiggo, was a character of sorts, a public-facing persona that helped him hide from who he really was and what he'd been through. In 2022, Bradley sat down for an interview with Alistair Campbell in Men's Health magazine. This was the first time he spoke publicly about being groomed by a coach as a teenager. As a result of his own experiences, he's been working with the NSPCC on their Listen Up, Speak Up campaign to raise awareness about child abuse. And the NSPCC also set up a support line for fellow cyclists. Bradley is also the current Mind Charity front cover and interview, encouraging people to talk about their mental health and is supporting their charity bike ride, which takes place on Sunday, the 28th of May. It took Bradley a while to find my house, but once he got here, I was so incredibly grateful and privileged that he felt able to have this very moving conversation with me. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I know you're very keen to hear from Bradley, but just before we get to him, I want to tell you about this year's Happy Place Festivals. They're going to feature some of the gorgeous well-being experts that you know from the podcast and the Happy Place app. They'll be doing meditation sessions, yoga, breathwork classes and loads of really cool stuff. And if you can't wait till the festivals, you can experience lots of their practices on the Happy Place app now. I am so excited that we're going to be announcing our first guests of the 2023 festival lineup this week. So do keep an eye out on social media. All right, here's what you've been waiting for. Here's the show.
So Bradley Wiggins, good to see you. Thank you for having me, Kevin. Are you well today? I am actually, yeah. I'm a bit rushed this morning trying to find here, but um, we got here eventually. <laughs> you had a wild goose chase yeah. to find my house, but I'm glad that you've made it here. We've got lots to talk about. Um, I'd love to talk, first of all, about the Mind Ride London to Essex campaign that you're involved in. Yes. Um, it's happening in May. Why do you want to be involved in it? How can people get involved to help with what Mind are doing? Um, it's uh, it's in May. The Mind have got a, f- a few places extra to fill up. And I think cycling is um, it's a real passageway to freedom and mental f- freedom, really. It's, um, there's a famous quote, well, saying actually within cycling that outside is free and, you know, everyone has access to a bicycle and it has the ability to change people's lives, people getting on a bike. Um, obviously, there's the obsession side of it and people get carried away and start spending lots of money. But, you know, just getting a few people on these bikes and, and filling up these places, it's, I think it's the first time this ride's been back on for a few years because it's been canned. It's a great opportunity to find some people and, and, and get them involved in it and um, hopefully change their lives. So um, it's something that um, I'm really got behind because um, cycling, I'd be nothing without cycling in my life. It's given me everything. And at the same time, it nearly took everything away from me. So Yes, because um, you've had a, you know, from <clears throat> the articles that I've read that you've done recently, although it's been an incredibly successful journey and um, part of your life, it, it's mm. definitely been a complicated one. It has, but um, I'm adamant that had it not happened, I wouldn't have had the success I had. I believe that um, all my success stemmed from adversity and um, running away from problems in my life. And I think that was the difference between good being good at something and great at something. I think greatness stems from adversity. Um, I had to deal with all that stuff when I stopped cycling when I was 36, really. It's why I had sustained success as well, because um, it was always on to the next thing, always moving on to the next thing. And... Um, I'm I'm a freer man now. I've dealt with it all in my head. So having that sense that you were running from pain and the past, did you, when you were sort of having that ascent in your cycling mm. career, did you assume that when you reached the pinnacle of success that you would feel free from the past? No. No? No, because I didn't know I was running from it at the time. Oh, right. The, the main thing that drove me throughout my cycling career was fear. And that, that emotion was fear, really. And so when I look back... Um, the fear, um, I never knew where it stemmed from, really. I was always a scared person, really, most of the time when I was going into events, going into Olympic finals and things, and it was always the, the fear of losing. And that fear of losing was something that stemmed from my childhood, really. I don't know why. Um, I haven't really dealt with that yet. But it's certainly um, when I looked back at my career, there was no real, there was no joy. There was no enjoyment. There was no um, enjoying the moment, the success. It was just... It was like ticking a box, and um, winning became the normal, winning became the standard, and it was always a case of moving on to the next thing. And when I didn't have something to move on to, I'd slip away and start drinking and things like that. So I'd get bored very easy, so I needed something to occupy my mind, really, and, and focusing on objective, which was far enough away down the distance that I could go through a process and occupy myself in the process and keep myself busy. Routine for me and distraction and having a goal on something was a great distraction from dealing with uh, looking at myself. So would you say that reaching that pinnacle of success, which I'm sure you would equate to being winning the time trials at the Olympics in 2012, Tour de France triumph, were they the moments where you had to start examining that and go, oh, well, I've done the things I wanted to do, now what? Yeah, I think um, the Olympics was a big one in London because that that had been so far down the road. Obviously, they announced the Olympics in London in 2007. So that had always been like a long-term objective, five years, really. But when I achieved it, I won the Tour de France and I won the Olympics 10 days later. 
and I think I said to Matt Dawson at the finish of Five Live, give me an interview, and I said, I don't think it's ever going to get any better than this, and I don't know what I'm going to do now, really. And that was the reality of it, really. Is I, I, I was almost annoyed that it was over because I had nothing else, I had no daily routine after that, what to do. I didn't know what I was getting out of bed for in the morning. So, so I slipped for the next five, six months after that, really, into kind of playing this character, and I was famous, and I didn't know how to handle it. So I played this kind of veil of a rock star kind of thing. And that was just for my insecurity, really, and, and adopting something that I perceived to be quite cool. But yeah, I never really got back to the heights after that. I won things after that and won world titles and things like that. But in terms of like a mental, you know, kind of achievement, that, that, was, that was as good as it ever got. But then I, I, went, I decided that the Olympics in Rio was going to be my last Olympic Games. I got to that and I knew I was pretty much going to retire then. I was done pretty much. I craved normality, but I didn't know what normal life was for me, really. So I, um, I struggled ever since then. I went into rowing after that. I took up rowing with a view to maybe try and make another Olympic team in rowing, but you don't pick up rowing just overnight. You know, it took many, many years. So it's, um, I struggled after that, really, yeah. And then I, I think from that point on, then I started addressing myself really and dealing with stuff that had happened in my childhood that I hadn't accepted. So that's really been a time of healing from that that moment where everyone yeah. would assume you're on top of the world. It's the best day of your life. That was almost the start of something unravelling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my career... I mean, I'm proud of it and it means a lot to me, but it doesn't define me. And I think it's not something now that I sit back and look on and sort of think, God, they were the best years of my life. They were just, whatever I do now is is, is almost going to, um, like this stuff that I'm doing now has been much more rewarding, really. Um, much more fulfilling as a person. But it's a funny thing, you know. I just think lots of people don't accept and deal with things that they did until they get older. I didn't because I had to adopt a persona, which was one of a sportsman, really, which you could not be perceived to have any um, any weaknesses or any chinks in your armour. And um, so you've got to be caught too cool for school the whole time, really. And um, you can't let your guard down one minute. And it's obviously once you stop and that, that's gone. I, I think there's a lot of it to do with well, my son. Son is a cyclist now, really. And he got to the age of 13 and I started... It was like looking in the mirror, you know, he started having coaches and things around him and then I realised what norm is, what normality should be, really. I think that's when I started addressing sort of certain things that had happened to me, really, and then the abnormality of my childhood, really, and, and how it shouldn't have been like that. But at the same time, you know, we're all products of our childhood and products of our environment, and um, I wouldn't I wouldn't have achieved what I achieved, and I wouldn't be the person I'm sat here today had I not had that. So, mm-hmm. And I'm not alone, and I think that's one of the things as well. Once you start talking about this stuff, you realise you're not alone. Yeah. And I think that's been the bit most liberating thing. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, you know, something that was your greatest embarrassment and shame, which is one of the reasons why you don't talk about a lot of these things, is, is um, something that, that actually makes you the is the most empowering thing for you when you do come out and talk about it and start speaking to people and um, and then see the opportunity available to you after that in terms of what you want to do at work. Because one of the other things as well, once I stopped cycling, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in my life. So I went on the jump to begin with, hated it. Um, and then I went down the whole avenues of like corporate speaking, you know, keynote speaking and things like that. But nothing was really hitting the spot and rewarding me and fulfilling me. And funnily enough, it's the most, it's the stuff I've been doing recently, launching a campaign for the NSPCC and stuff. The stuff that isn't paid work that has been the most rewarding, the most fulfilling. Yeah, which being is a much, service. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and like you say, like connecting. And I wonder how much of that has helped you move through very tricky situations because your work with the NSPCC mm. is, is motivated personally because you suffered abuse when yeah. you were a teenager mm. from one of your coaches. Yes. That is obviously something that is going to take years of healing and processing. Mm. 
where are you with that? How how do you feel today about having to face that period of your life? Yeah, I mean, um, I think the hardest point was going through the, the campaign stuff and um, in recall, doing interviews about it, you know, and, and drawing on your experience to help the campaign. And I, I actually struggled quite a lot that period and I didn't realise it more than anything. It just, you know, I was having to relive some of the, the, the minor incidents that happened to me with this coach to newspapers like The Express and that just, just to draw, in order to help the campaign, in order to draw experience and, and, and kind of add weight to the campaign, I draw on one or two of the, the sort of lesser minor incidents, if you could call them that, that happened to me. Because one of the things that I, um, I realised in this, this happened over a three-year period. I can't remember how many times it happened. And we're talking sort of incidents from very minor to to like borderline, which you, you know, which you could deem as rape, sexual abuse, whatever term you want to use. But um, it just in in recalling this sort of stuff and rec- going on your own um, experiences to add weight to the campaign and doing interviews and and, and trying to really beef it up. I, I found that I was um, it took me back and I was recalling lots of the incidents that happened in my head over and over again, particularly this guy's face, and um, it really hit me hard the week after that. Really, so I, I've. I have to be careful how much I do in order, to, in order to help other people at the expense of myself, really, because I probably took it for granted a little bit that um, I was through this and I was fine. You know, there's a, there's a timeline with it um, and there's a process to go through. And I was probably earlier in that process than I thought I was, really. And um, when Is that I, because you'd been so used to blocking it out? I think maybe, yeah. And I've never seen a therapist probably something I should do really yeah I've had to deal with it all myself really yeah I've, I've never I've lost trust in therapists mm. so last April was the first time I came out about it with um Alistair in men's health yeah so I thought you know a year on you know kind of I'm right now I can talk about it yeah I can help anyone you know do you want me to tell you what happened to me and he started doing stuff like that you know I was like I found that actually Brad do you know this is this is pretty heavy now and um I had to back off a little bit after that because you know, and then NSPC were like, you know, we'd love you to get involved in more campaigns and stuff like that. But I go, you know, I have to, yeah. I have to be careful here. Um, I need to make sure that I'm all right. Yeah. And, and I, I think I underestimate. And that was the first red flag for me, really. So a couple of weeks off, not thinking about it, but not thinking about it is not actually dealing with it, is it really? So mm. it, it was a learning experience in that process for me, really. And I'm still early in that process. And as you just said, this is something that's going to take a long time to. And I, I hadn't appreciated that. I thought the minute you sort of say it and go, yeah, I'm over it now. Yeah. But. It was a wake-up call. Yeah, I think one of the hardest things, I guess, with any type of trauma is that it could be a life's work in dealing with it. And sometimes yeah. there are situations where you might never make complete peace, but yeah. it's still worth walking down the road. Of I never healing. considered it a trauma. Really? No. And it, you know, what is a trauma, really? I, um, you know, I had a knife put to my throat as a kid and things like that. And I always think of that as like terrifying moments. So I always sort of considered that to be a trauma but I don't know what a trauma is supposed to feel like you know it's a trauma you know it comes something that you kind of can't think about or whatever I don't I don't know and I think that's been the learning process with this is is, is I'm learning new definitions to what we throw words around like trauma yeah, all the time yeah. and stuff yeah because I've I've un- started to understand that you know it's not something that you recall in memory that because I recall things in memory and not be, fi- be fine about them I could talk about them and be candidly open but I think sometimes it's 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 in doing that it's the abnormality of something that I, I struggle to get my head around sometimes as well. And and the, the phrase I've used a few times, certainly in Mind magazine, was the greatest shame was that another man had done this act to me, and that was my greatest shame is that I couldn't get my head around the sort of abnormality of that. That that's not supposed to be right, particularly thirteen. I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's um. 
And uh, that is a trauma, isn't it? You know, because the reaction to it, yeah. It is. And also, the reaction can be one that is deemed success, which yeah. yours was. You know, it doesn't always have to be the reaction well, is this awful. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your reaction was to push yourself to the point of well, I, global success. Well, I think success. from that moment it happened, I pretended it didn't happen. Yeah. You know, and that was the easiest way to deal with it. Um, and then from that moment, I just dedicated my life to cycling as a distraction. But this guy as well, this this this, this guy as well, actually, he, he met me when I was 12 and he felt my pulse. And he said, the strength of your pulse, he says, you're going to be the greatest cyclist that's ever lived. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. He used to say that to everyone he met. And I couldn't understand why, why was why was I the one that, you know. But this happened to other people as well. You found out since. Well, within... yeah. So, so since then, I mean, when I announced it with Alistair Campbell, I had three messages from three different club mates who were in the same club at the time said, looking back, we kind of all knew really and we should we we should have all done more to help you and so um but that's what your the campaign that you've been running has yeah, been about is, yeah. is is spotting signs is not feeling is, scared yeah. to intervene it's, a lot of it's just common sense yeah you know there's not sort of remembering 10 things you know if this that yeah sometimes the effects of abuse aren't clear and and recognizable but you know we all have a duty we can all sense when there's something not right with a child um and even just that aloofness, quietness, it's just, even if you don't sense it, it's just something, you know, just befriending a child to ask them if they could they could talk to you about anything, if there's anything you want to talk about, feeling that comfort, feeling that protection. I think that's the biggest one, is feeling someone that you feel protected by. Yeah. And a lot of kids lack protection in childhood. Um, and it's just common sense. A lot of it's common sense as a human being. It's not about, can I didn't recognise the signs, it's just ask kid if he's all right. Mm. You know, and um, that, that fear of intervening, yes, you know, fear of being wrong, you know, that... Fear of accusing someone or something, or the insinuation of something to someone that 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 is, um, you know, upsetting for people. But it's, uh, you know, yeah, it's it's a funny one, isn't it? But again, this campaign I was got involved in it's the starting point. I can't believe nothing's been done like that before. Yeah, it just shows you how how behind we are. And, and even when I did that, you know, what, one of the things I recognised with that in asking questions and answering questions of a lot of these people is how political it starts getting after a while. You know, it starts getting about money and funding and are they doing enough and statistics and all this. And then sometimes the questions have to be, you know, steered towards the, 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 the CEO and the chairman of, of the NSPCD because I couldn't answer after questions on political stuff. It, it, I realised that it's, it's a lot of politi- politics and money and financial stuff. Lots of it starts getting in the way of actual action being taken and being yeah. done. Yeah, and I, I imagine it's tough work and a barrier for these people. And um, but it's very important to have the storytelling side of it as painful as that has been and I will agree. be for you. I, I think agree. it's deeply powerful because there'll be people listening to this now yeah. who may have experienced very similar to you. I agree, and it could be completely, you know, kept in an yeah. insular way to them, which is doing them no good at all. Absolutely. And you mentioned a moment ago a feeling which is obviously prevalent in this area, which is shame. Mm. And I've definitely had periods of my life where I've been sort of drowning in shame, and it's a horrible, ugly emotion, and one that's very hard to negate when you've got a past like mm. this. So how do you deal with those feelings? How are you moving through it and getting on with your life? Um as part of that process by talking about it and obviously it has an effect on me when I talk about it at that time but I have to learn to come away from that and recover it's a bit like doing a race you know I empty myself and then recover and that's part of the process as well but that's it even though it has an after effect in talking about it to that extent I just have to give myself time and space afterwards to recover and heal 
but it's a bit like training as a cyclist. You know, you, you train your body, you, you damage the muscle, you repair it, and it grows stronger. So I think this is part of the process for me as well. Is 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 it's never a case of just leaving it and um, never talking about it again. But in talking about it and sharing it, that's the fulfilling part is in sharing that story with other people and maybe touching one or two people. Some of the message I got after various campaigns and things I've done um, have been really, really rewarding and touching for me and fulfilling. But it's not something I can focus on constantly. You know, it's like a constant, it, it, it needs time to rest and the right environment as well and then come back to it. So that 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 has been the most rewarding thing is, is seeing the effects or touching one or two people and, and their experiences. But it definitely needs time afterwards where you have to just shut it down and have some mental recovery because this isn't something you can just go to therapy twice a week for and constantly keep touching on mm. traumas. Because I think like the people that have gone to therapy that told me that you start tapping into a trauma, it leaves you drained for days afterwards. Yeah. And that's what I've got to be careful of. Really. So it has been a learning experience for me, really. Do you think therapy is on the cards? Is it something you'll consider? I have to, yeah. I suppose I have to at yeah. some point, yeah. I mean, there's so many... Um, where do you start, though? Where do you start? I mean, there's so many interesting different therapeutic things yeah, these days. Yeah. EMDR therapy, cognitive, somatic work. I mean, it's definitely worth yeah. a go. No, I think I'm going to definitely... There's a lot of fear associated with that as well, I think. Um, From you? Yeah. Yeah. I'm almost scared to find out what I'm going to find out. Yeah. And that, that that's probably not what I've been ready for up to this point, but I'm kind of ready for it now. Like I said, fear's always been a driving force in my life. And I think that fear is attached to the unknown, really, because obviously there's a lot with my father as well, which is attached to that subject, because I wish he'd been around more. And, um, yes, yeah, very, very, it's very complex, you know. So that was another driving force for yeah. your determination during your career, was your dad was very absent from when you were yeah. a tiny kid. Yeah. And you also, not only was he absent, but you had you idolised him. You had this yeah. uh, maybe he, slightly warped vision of, of who he was to you. Um, well, he was a professional cyclist. Um, and I grew up knowing all about him. My mum never, my mum always told me about him, but she glorified him in a cycling sense. I started seeing pictures of him and everything. What he was good at, this, that and the other. He was a hard Australian who liked fighting. But she also glorified all these bad traits. You know, he was violent. He was aggressive towards her, me, um, and there were very many other people, but he was an alcoholic, probably bipolar when I look back. You know, they called him manic depressive, but he certainly struggled from bipolar probably because um, lots of people told me since he was never liked to be on his own and things like that. So I kind of, it's in, in this sort of bizarre situation I found myself in, in my teens and my coach, you know, I had a stepfather who was physically violent towards me a lot, but most kids' dads were in the 80s. You know, it was like a different time. This before the new age man. And um, I always wished I, my dad was around, really, to protect me. You know, I always wished I had a father figure around to protect me. And so that was part of the driving cycling as well, is, is, is trying to show him, prove to him and, and follow his footsteps. So I took up cycling. My mum pushed me into cycling. She never stopped loving my father. And, um, you know, she um, said, you, your dad never wanted you to be a cyclist, but you, you, I think you'll be really good at it. So, so I kind of took up cycling. Then that started happening was pretty much as soon as I started cycling with my coach. And I just wished I'd had a dad around. So the part of the drive and the fear was just that that was the closest connection I could have with my father was just following his footsteps, really. I mean, and you did, you sort of reconnected with him in your late teens. So how, how did, was yes, that? But so, so when I was going through my teens and cycling, everywhere I went, everyone knew who my dad was. Because um, my dad was feared and revered. When I was in the cycling world, it was like having a dad because they'd all say, oh, you're Wigo's boy, aren't you? God, yeah. And um, so it was... It, 
It's like having Ronnie Cray as your dad, you know, that kind of thing. It was a little bit, you know, like people would be a bit scared, mm. but a bit... And I say Ronnie Cray because they were terrified of him as well because yeah. he was a liability and a loose cannon. So, but, so, but it was like having a dad in the cycling world for the first time, you know, and it's like, oh, don't, is he going to be like his dad was, you know? And like, it's, uh, it was like I had this sort of strength of my dad without him being around. And um, as I got better and better, and I sort of, it, it was, it was this weird dynamic of trying, it was the closest I could be to my dad is in the cycling world, because he was name was always people come up to me, oh you're Gary, aren't you? No, oh sorry, you're Bradley, aren't you? Because uh, you know, and I got nicknamed Wigo from a young Wigo's boy and all this. So I had a dad without even him being present. Anyway, I got to seventeen, and I started winning junior titles and world titles, and then my my nan got a phone call when I was eighteen. Because she still had the same phone number, 3285492. She's always had it since it was 01328. I love how the brain stores unuseful shit like that. Because I always used to reverse the charges to my hands. A classic 90s move. My dad had her number still. He rang up and he said, hello, Maureen, it's Gary. Can I speak to Brad? So we didn't have a landline. So my nan ran through the flats. And my mum said, oh, your dad's rang. Do you want to speak to him? So anyway... That's how that I hadn't seen him for sixteen years. And you hadn't spoken to him in sixteen years. No. Wow. I rang him up. He said, "Yeah, yeah, Lord Bradley, it's your father." And uh, he'd seen my name in a cycling magazine in in Australia. And he seen a B Wiggins, and he thought that must be Brad. Wow. And he wanted to be back part of my life again because I was starting to be successful. Mm. And um, yeah, we were chatted, you know, bits and pieces on the phone and stuff over the next year. I won the junior world championship. And then it started turning a little bit, you know, he goes, this is because you're my son, you're doing this well. And this, this was just all phone conversation. In the end, I went to meet him. I met my dad when I was 19 in Belgium for the first time. That was really tough when I look back. Only because I've got my own son now, you know. Yeah. I could, I, it, it must be really hard. Well, it was hard meeting your dad when you're 19. Yeah. And him being your hero, but actually just wanting your dad your whole life. Yeah. But he was, by then I was really good and he was very, he started turning on me and very competitive and he says, you know, you'll never be as good as your old man. That's what his words were. Wow. And they, they always stuck with me from that point on. Well, of course. And I found myself never not liking him. Couldn't wait to get rid of him. Couldn't wait till he went back to Australia. And then uh, for the next 12, 13 years, that was my, it was a fear. And you'll, you'll never be as good as your old man. And that was the thing that drove me for the rest of my life then. You know, he won a European title. You know, and he was Australian champion, but, you know, I won 11 world titles, five Olympic golds, Tour de France, yeah, our record. I never stopped after that. It was all because I wanted to be better than my dad. Wow. And then he got murdered in 2008, and I had to deal with that. And then it was like, you know, yeah. And that's that's still unresolved. And I never went to the funeral. No, they never found out who did no. it. No. So how does that sit with you? <sighs> if he was here today, I wish there's so many questions I could ask him. Mm. As As a man now. But the funny thing is, he was so intimidating and so so cold. I don't think, I think if I'd had a conversation with him, I, I, I kind of feel like I'd have just been thrust back down to an 18-year-old boy, like, get in your place, get in your, in your place, boy. And I couldn't have had an adult conversation with him and say, why did you leave and things like that, you know. So it's, it's just left me with so many, uh, and, and I could never have told about this, come out with this, the stuff, the sexual abuse stuff, because... Yeah. He'd have took it out of me. He wanted to kill this person for a start, but then he'd have blamed me and been quite bigoted towards me and kind of said, you know, I could just imagine what you'd have said. 
So I guess all of that led to you not yeah. saying anything for years and years oh, and yeah, years. Because yeah. that is the fear again. Uh, this is it's the first time I spoke about a lot about this since January, since the the, the, the campaign stuff. And even now, it, I've I've healed a little bit more, and I'm. It's addressing new emotion now when I'm talking about it, mm. which I never imagined. That's a good thing, isn't it? Yes. Because it shows that you'll yeah. just keep So it's finding probably time you. I go and speak to someone, I think. I think so. <laughs> I think so. I don't I don't think there's ever any harm in trying no, therapy. No, definitely not. Because you can walk away if you don't like it, yeah. but at least it gives you a chance yeah. to pick through so much. I mean, there's so much for you to pick through and the mm. driving force that's led to your success and, and the unravelling after that. Because I think that's... It's a really interesting time of your life where you've got the world yeah. adoring you. And as you said, you're an introvert, so that's oh. not pleasurable. That's that's quite traumatising, having everybody yeah. put their, their focus on you. And, and and there was this character born from that. So we yeah. go with the sideburns and you're playing up to something to mask yeah. all of this stuff. Pretty much, yeah. It was an easy it was an easy veil to go out in public in. But I amplified it to the extreme, you know, and I played guitar and things like that. But I ended up playing on stage with Paul Weller at the Hammersmith Apollo. And it, it blurred the lines about who I actually was. And then I, you know, I drink in and stuff like that when I was at Sports Personality of the Year because I couldn't handle all these people watching me. Really. Yeah. But I played this sort of character on stage and then rolled out a whiskey misc at one in the morning on the front page of the newspapers. And lots of people loved it because we hadn't seen a sportsman like this. But it, but then when I wanted to come back to Mr. Sirius, who'd won five Olympic goals and talk about the process and how I'd done it and the ability to execute an Olympic final, no one wanted to know about that. Mm. You know, they want to know what jam songs you like and things like this. And, and I found myself, I, I invented this character and made this character and amplified him. That It took away from what I was really good at and the skill and the, yeah. the genius I had inside me as an athlete. So when, when you get rid of the sideburns and you're like, right, I'm not doing that character anymore... Was there a sense of, I don't know who I am? Yeah, massively. I had an identity crisis, if you like. I'd, I'd been a cyclist for so long, I'd only known who Sir Bradley Wiggins was, a cyclist, really, and how to be him in public when people are coming up to you saying, you're a legend, you're a hero, you've changed my life, you're an inspiration, play it all cool. No, don't mention it, for, you know, all this sort of stuff. But So when you, if you're faced with a picture of Sir Wiggo sat on the throne, Hampton Court, what do you, how do you feel about that? Well, the whole crossing the legs things up, that was because there was a bank of cameras watching me and I feel the feeling of the need to perform. And it was that feeling of the need to perform and never just being able to sit there and take the moment in and be you know, respectful to the moment. It's just, even when the National Anthem was playing, I was doing all this, I couldn't, I couldn't take praise for one and I couldn't take adulation really. But I played to the adulation and looked like I was enjoying it and amplified it and made it worse. And it was, it was always, for me, it was always a... Um, devaluing or of a moment that was supposed to be humbling and take it in and enjoy the moment I always have to make a sort of a mockery of it and be funny in that moment whether it was playing the national anthem Rio when I stuck my tongue out whether it was you know sitting on the throne doing that or pick, going up to pick sports person out of the year and calling Susan things like that it was always sort of making a joke in the moment of something that was serious and I was unable to and I don't know why that was the only time that I was really serious and proper was when I went to meet the Queen for my knighthood and it was really humbling. I think it was a false sense of belief and all the training, dedication, everything, that was just an excuse to go and do something that distracted myself. Um, but when it actually came to it and I executed and won the thing, I couldn't believe it because I had to come back to me at that point. And I was like, how have I done this? No, this isn't right. You know, I don't deserve this. And I had that moment that through my whole career through that Tour de France for five Olympic golds. When I watched Stephen Redberg win five Olympic golds when I was a kid... You know, Steve was the, the epitome of hard work and training and dedication over a long period of time. And then when I did it, I had to pull my tongue out on the podium there because it wasn't the same. It's like, this isn't the same Olympics that Steve Redgrave did. 
and and that's what I always had is is my character and personality was so different to the likes of Michael Johnson, Carl Lewis, Steve Redgrave, these people, Chris Hoy, that that all stemmed from my childhood, the lack of confidence and things like that. Yeah. So it carried throughout my career more than ever, I guess, in terms of I know who I am as a person and I'm happy being me. And the only way to be me is to be open, honest and you know, candid about my experiences with the lack of shame. But um, I've no, I've no, I can't recognise at all the cyclist anymore, that Sir Wigo person. I know who he was, but I'm far removed from that person now. I couldn't be him as an athlete anymore. I can't understand how he did that. But as a person off the bike, this it's worlds apart. Mm-hmm. So I am happier being me, yeah. But then, then the contradiction with that is when I go down the street and someone wants to stop me and say, "Hi, hey, Sir Bradley, can I, can I just have a photo with you?" I've, I'm 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 almost replacing him that was doing it. <laughs> I, it's, it's this kind of split personality thing almost. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's interesting how we view success because most people are striving to be a success in whatever they do. It might not even be in terms of work, but yeah. in whatever their dreams and desires are, assuming that that will equal some sort of completion and final euphoria and happiness. Yeah. And you're actually saying you're happier today than you were sat atop the yeah, throne. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I wouldn't be here today and, and, and that person without that. I've kind of had to go through all those experiences, but that doesn't define me. You know, and I, I battle with people every day that say to me, you know, you know, you must be so proud of what you've done. I was like, not really. Well, not not proud is the wrong word. I am, you know, I'm proud. No, you should be. You've got, you should be proud of it. Honestly, if that was me, I'd do this. You know, they always tell you what they would do. But half the reason that people can't imagine doing something like that is because normal people can't. Like, if I was like this as a child, I, I wouldn't have had this sort of desire and the drive and the push. I was like, what, six hours a day on a bike? No, God, I get, get a normal job. But you have to have something different about you, and there has to be something quite odd about you. I was a very odd child, you know. I was um, fast. I was obsessed with cycling. You know, my, I was just. I could tell you. So this is another thing now as well that because I threw myself into cycling, I became like a sponge to cycling. I when I do cycling commentary and things now, uh, they call me the Oracle because I, I know everything. You know what shoes someone was wearing in nineteen ninety six, what 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 race they won, anything. It was like a religion to me. And, yeah. and now I don't really pay an interest in cycling. I couldn't care less who's done what. I don't really know after rides anymore, what their names are. I don't watch cycling anymore, which is why I'm finding it harder to do the job because um, I have no interest in it. it. It it filled a massive void in my life with a view to being close to my dad and things like that. And escapism. And now I people say, oh, it's a shame you fought in that love with cycling. It's like, it was, I was never in love with it. It became a religion. You don't fall in love with a religion. You adopted a religion, and I adopted a religion of cycling. And now I've left my faith, if you like. Mm. It's not that I was ever in love with it. Oh, I've never been on the bike. You can't, You should get back on the bike. You know, it's a shame you lost the love for the bike. Normal people love cycling. They go out, they love getting on the bike. I can't stand it. I hated cycling, really, the, the act of riding a bike. It just gave me, it was a, it was a, it was a means, it was, it was to facilitate what I wanted to do in my life. So how do you feel about your son, who's now at an extremely successful yeah. level already as a teenager? I'm incredibly proud of him, yeah. But he was, 
he, he, I was already proud of him as a person. That's the important thing now. I, you know, I never really got involved in his psychic career because I always wanted to just be his dad first and foremost, which stemmed from mine. I didn't want to be the one who pushed him into cycling, the coach, and you know, coaching him, getting him back from school at night and saying, right, you need to go and do those two hours on the bike. He comes to me now and goes, do you think I should train today, Dad? I said, how do you feel? You know, and I can have a proper father-son relationship with him. He's got coaches, and I'm there as his dad first and foremost, his mentor, um, deal with problems in his life that are, are not cycling-related. And that was very important for me. But, you know, I love him to bits. I'm incredibly proud of him, and I think he'll be better than I am as a cyclist. You know? Wow, that's exciting. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. How do you feel with him moving towards that with the press attention that will be on him? Because that's a whole other yeah. shit show oh, that you've God. had to deal with. Yeah, I mean, he had he had it last week, actually. He had a journalist emailed him because he liked an Andrew Tate tweet. But that is kind of like what he's got to be careful of. Yeah. Um, so he, he's aware of that. And it's you know he's got management now and, and how they deal with that is, is up to them. But it just shows you that, you know, you have to, as a, the spotlight's on you from any point of view now, whatever yeah. you're doing. I mean, one of the times when the press obviously tried to take you down the most was when it, there was a term within about four-year period of you being uh, the hero to the alleged villain with the doping allegations. Yeah. How do you deal with the injustice of stories being printed without proof? Um, well, there was no insinuation. There was no actual allegation. I mean, there was the whole thing with that was there, there was no one actually said what what it was that I was being uh, accused of, but it was all in their interests, you know, to make this thing go away because it was all to do with public money and things like that. But it's very sinister. And uh, there's a reason I'm still sat here today. And people seem to still like me and things like this, because I've continued being myself through the whole process. And no one actually said what it was that there was this incentive, accusation of doping, but no one could actually tell you what it was. So, um, I mean, it's just a, an incredible turnaround, really, as you say, from that four-year period to to this, really. And that is, it's... Um, it's all gone quiet now. You don't really hear much about it anymore. No. Nope. Um, so yeah, you could, you know, I could. I was very bitter for a couple of years, but at the end of the day, you've got to start. I, I don't really pay much attention to them anymore, and um, I occupy myself with stuff that's really fulfilling, and rewarding. Really. Yeah, it's been a it's been a, a turbulent couple of years since so, I stopped. So what what have you discovered in this time since? This discovery that you don't want to play a character, yeah. that you are quite happy to leave professional cycling yeah. to one side. What what makes you tick? What is doing it for you? Um, my children now, really. I think they've been... Um, I found it a lot, I found it very difficult to find something to occupy my time with. Really. I get bored very easy and I do need to occupy myself, but I also need something that I'm fucking passionate about and that I'm... Uh, that really I buy into that, that gets me out of bed in the morning. And that's been a very, very difficult thing to find. Very difficult. But my children now, really, giving them the time and attention and love and, and happiness that I, I can as much as possible individually because they're all of the ages now, they're all different ages that, that they need my individual time. It's not a case of all getting them together and going to Disneyland because they couldn't pass that. You know, and then, like my son texted me yesterday and said, um, do you fancy coming to Glasgow next week to look at the World Junior Time Trial course, which is in the World Championships in Glasgow this year? So so that's a two-day trip, you know. And it, I'm kind of, you know, I'm on there on standby for my kids, really. I mean, it's like I should get a pager, really, because <laughs> whether it's, you know, Dad, I need 20 quid. Yeah. <laughs> Can I go to Nando's, yeah. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm kind of like that all the time with them, really. <laughs> Other than that, I still haven't found a daily thing, you know, that... Uh, nature of my work is it's quite bitty you know and this is coming along you know and I think I'm getting more to the place now where this side of things you know the mental health thing and um the the child neglect and abuse thing is 
probably going to become more of my um I'd like it to become more of a daily job where I'm not dealing with my own trauma so much but helping others. And if you feel your past nipping at your heels, if you start to have a day where you feel like it's all too much and you're slipping into a dark place, do you have any techniques to get yourself out of it or ways to deal with it? No, not really. Um, I have to keep myself in a routine. That's the main thing. Um, routine, I have to go and train, do the gym or running um, daily because that, that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the day for me then. And if I, I'm prone to leaving that till late in the day, I'll go tonight, the day's already gone. So I do have to get into a routine where I start my day with that and it kind of sets the tone for the rest of the day. Then it, it, it's um, And it held me in good stead for many, many years when I was training. And it's took me five or six years to realise that that, that one hour sets the tone for the rest of the day then because there's no chasing your tail from that point on. It's um, it's that really. It's the routine and having a, and planning a structure to the week really. So whatever it is, even if it's something as small as making a phone call or things like that is... Now I say all this, I don't do it. I don't implement it. <laughs> I, I talk about but a lot of I've, stuff that I've I don't realized, do. <laughs> I've realised I have to I have to do something because yeah. I'm prone to slipping. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 Well, that's good. You've got you've got you know things in place to but, help you out. But these are all the things I've only just learned in 2023. Yeah. So it's funny, you know. I kind of I vowed at the end of 2022. I was like, I want to make this the best year of my life, if you like. I'm gonna make. I don't want to be where I am at the end of 22 and the end of 2023. And I'm. It's nearly March, and I thought, oh, fuck that one up, anyway. <laughs> but, but having talking to you, I realised that I've actually made some positive things. It's been yeah. yeah. But I do think it have to be these sort of monumental no, no, moments. It's no. it's tiny everyday stuff. That I stopped you're smoking aware of. last year. That well, was that's good. Yeah, and I, that one went under the radar. Yeah, so it's just it's that it's these like you said these not these big. You have to make a massive monumental thing. It's no. just a lot of it's just realizing some things in your life sometimes. Yeah. Um, and then it's a case of implementing them. But I think the next biggest thing for me is 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 addressing and going to therapy. Yeah. But it's finding the therapist. Who do you find? Because I've always found this thing, you know, I don't know. Uh, I went into the therapist's office once and I walked out because he had a picture of me on the wall and he asked if he could actually sign it before I left. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, and I thought, well, this, this is a bad start. It's a terrible start. <laughs> yeah. No, find, a... find one that doesn't do that. But I think it would be a good thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It seems like it's the right time yeah, to do it. I, I think timing's everything. Yeah. And a lot of it is, you know, I think the fear of going into a therapist's office and closing up, not, uh, you know, there's an element of like, but I'm at a stage now where I can, I can pretty much offload. Yeah, and that's their job to get it out of you as well. Yeah, so you have yeah. to put that emphasis yeah. on yourself maybe. Yes. But I think it's brilliant. And I really appreciate you talking about all this stuff today because no. I know it doesn't come without that slight mental hangover afterwards yeah. and a draining. I totally understand that. So I really appreciate you No, it's you fine, because I did spot a pub at the end of the road before I came <laughs> Don't know. That's, so, uh, that's not the way to I'll turn I'll probably up. be in there for the rest of the day now. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Thanks, Fern. It's all gone pear-shaped. Well, uh, honestly, thank you, no, so, thank much, you so much, so Bradley. It's, it's been, been a, a joy. been a privilege. Thank you very much. Well, that was an incredibly raw chat with Bradley. And... I honestly never take it for granted just how difficult but also draining it is to retell experiences like that. So Bradley, I cannot thank you enough for spending time with me and for all the great work you're doing with the NSPCC and MIND. 
Do check the show notes, by the way, if you want to get involved in Ride London with Mind. It's a fantastic cause, a charity that I adore. And if you want to carry on any of the conversations we've had here today with the rest of the Happy Place community, do come find us on Instagram. We're at Happy Place Official. Until next time, a huge thank you again to Sir Bradley, to the producer, Anushka Tate, who should be a dame, at Rethink Audio, and to you. Take care of yourself. Big love, people. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com